Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. This is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. And happy Star Wars Day, everyone. May the 4th be with you. I'll be honest, I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I do know that Princess Leia has the most fantastic hair, which is quite important. So this week on Unscrubbed, I'm excited to have part two of Dr. Jake Lauer's interview where we dive into his perspective piece entitled Future of the Gynecologic Surgeon, Rationale and Steps Towards Subspecialization of Complex Gynecologic Surgery. Now, if you missed part one, be sure to check out his episode last week where he discusses his transition from residency to attending hood and then back into fellowship. This week in part two, we're going to dive into the history of the OBGYN profession and really where he sees the subspecialization of MIGs moving in the future. Jake is incredibly thoughtful, and I hope you enjoy this insightful conversation. Okay, friend, I want to dive into your perspective piece because it has my brain yeah. completely just, just innovative. I just, I'm, I, I love, I love your perspective on it. I love how you bring in the historical piece. I want to dive into this. Yeah, let's do it. So. If, if people uh, don't know exactly what I'm referencing, so Dr. Lauer and Dr. Vincula have a recent JMIG perspective piece entitled Future of the Gynecologic Surgeon, Rationale and Steps Towards Subspecialization of Complex Gynecologic Surgery. Can you talk to me a little bit about what inspired you to write this piece? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, a couple of things, but this is, a, again, like inner, inner nerd comes out, but randomly, when I was in college, so when I was in undergrad, um, you know, I was like a science major, but you have to take a, a history elective. And so my very last semester, I took this, or very last year, I took a course titled The Social History of American Medicine. And it was a really interesting course. It it kind of examined the historical events and, and reasons why medicine and public health are kind of distinct, especially in America. But I, one of the most interesting parts about it to me was the professor spent a lot of time talking about professionalization and what it means to be a profession. And so that was my introduction to realizing that like some of these topics that there is a lot of value in history and in sociology and in anthropology that a lot of the things that we experience and live are studied and explained by you know, scholars in fields that aren't medicine. So that's like always been in the back of my mind. And, uh, you know, just as we kind of talked about my career going from like residency to being a general OBGYN to going back to fellowship, it has made me think a lot about how different professions and to be specific to medicine, how different specialties and subspecialties interact, what we share in common and in ways in which we differ and sometimes ways in which we compete with one another. Um, and that that's just always been interesting to me. And I think part of the reason it's been interesting is because of that undergrad experience of like having this framework of like, oh, like professionals and how professions interact. And uh, so most of what inspired me is just that like as a MIGS fellow, I go to conferences, I am on Zoom calls now, I have conversations with people. Everybody wants to talk about like our specialty, what what's gonna happen with it? Um, what's the future of it? And I, I feel like there's oftentimes a 
call, like people are like, well, we just, we really want to separate gynecology from obstetrics. Um, we, we see, we think that would be valuable. And, you know, you can argue about the like tenets of that. Like we can have a discussion or an argument about should gynecology be separated from obstetrics? I know that's something that you've even talked about on your podcast that a lot of articles have been written about. And that, that conversation's always intrigued me. And whether you agree with it or not, I have just thought, but at some point that there has to be like a plan, right? Like at, at some point steps have to be taken to make that happen. Like obstetrics doesn't magically separate from gynecology, just like no specialty in history has ever just appeared out of nowhere. They they were formed through a process. And so it it made me think like, I want to understand that process more. How, how does a medical subspecialty develop? How does a specialty develop? How does a profession develop? And it's, I mean, there is an incredible amount of literature on this that come from scholars in history and sociology and anthropology. It's, I mean, it's nerdy, but it's like really interesting. And so I, I just set out to, to study that. I said, I, I want to like, ask this question of like, what's the future of our specialty and what can we learn from other fields of study that can help us to make steps towards defining our specialty? Uh, so that was kind of like kind of where it came from. And it, it honestly was like, um, I'm really thankful for my, my fellowship program that gave me a lot of designated research time in my first year because this was just a lot of time spent at the library and in coffee shops reading and pouring through some of this literature and kind of trying to understand how to apply that to our our specialty. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we're so siloed like within medicine itself, right? Like GYN, like OBGYN siloed from general surgery, which is siloed oftentimes from vascular. We're very siloed within medicine, but we're even more siloed from professions outside of medicine. So I think you're really ingenious, yes. yeah, and smart to number one, tap in just to the history of OBGYN, right? This is a long-standing issue. And I love those articles that you were quoting from like hundred years ago that yeah. were bringing up similar issues that we're experiencing now, right? This isn't new. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I, that I found most interesting is that I feel because we're, you know, kind of unaware of like all of the history of our specialty that people feel like the challenges that we see with trying to provi provide a full spectrum of high quality care, that this is like something very new. And the reality is it's not. I mean, this is like, this has been part of the challenge that has faced our specialty for like decades and decades and decades, really since its inception. And so I think it's, it's instructive for us to look at that and be like, all right, if this problem has persisted for that long, why has why has nothing really substantially changed? Um, because otherwise we're just kind of in a pendulum swing of history, right? We're just like repeating the same, same patterns over and over. Exactly. And ultimately what's happening is that patients are being neg negatively impacted, right? I mean, that's what it comes down to is that we're all, we're all in this for our patients. Again, our true north are our patients. And so if we're in a place that, um, that we can further optimize care for women, then, then we should be doing just that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think that's important to think about is that like, I think we could really go, I think as we grow our specialty and as we define specialties, um, we can really go wrong by making the true north something else, right? Like if, if what we want is our reputation or what we want is financial gain or what we want is like professional accolades, then like ultimately our efforts to define our specialty and create value in our specialty are going to either fail 
or you know accomplish the wrong purpose. Um, but I think when we really think about like how do we how does our profession play a role in providing the best care for our patients? If we keep that as like our ultimate goal, I think good decisions will be made. Then we'll win. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We won't miss the mark. Now, you're bringing up the idea, right? You talk about creative solutions to, to help our field, right? You bring up tracking residency, which obviously is, is one way we can maybe do it. You talk about separating the obstetrics from the gynecology, which could be another. You mentioned that if we separate the O from the G, it's not a quick solution. That is not something that is on the horizon anytime urgently soon, right? You talk about how the minimally invasive GYN surgery fellowship we really base this on a route or technology and how basing this on a route or technology isn't actually sustainable, right? Because as things change, then it actually is impacting our subspecialty. Talk to me about the vision of where you think our subspecialty should actually go and maybe even renaming our subspecialty. Well, I think like when you, when you read history, so there's like a couple interesting points here. So when you read like the history of medical specialties, there's a lot of different historians who argue for like different rationales or like the reasons that specialties develop. Technology is a reason that professions have developed, but oftentimes those professions are short-lived because as I wrote in the paper, like technology changes. And one of my favorite examples of this is that like at some point um, in American medical history, there was a medical specialty of railroad medicine. You had physicians who specialized in like being on trains and providing care for railway passengers. And we kind of laugh at that, right? Because we're like, well, that seems crazy. And obviously that specialty like went, um, became a thing of the past because transportation evolved and like we don't predominantly travel by railroad anymore. And uh, But I think it like makes a really compelling point that if you build your specialty around technology, that's your profession is inherently limited to the technology that you've centered it on. I think in the sociology uh, literature, um, Abbott was one of the one of the scholars or researchers that I think has written most extensively about um, the nature of professionalization. And Abbott talks about different ways that professions can, can define their specialty. And he uses a couple of different terms that uh, you know I wrote about in the paper, but uh, basically what, what he's saying is that professions that have a more holistic, let me, let me see if I can articulate this right. When we think about it, if you use like a, a medical analogy uh, to, to use the terms diagnosis uh, versus treatment uh, versus inference, what Abbott is saying is that professions that can just label a problem or professions that can just deploy one strategy to treat a problem, those professions have less longevity than other professions because those things can be outsourced or those things can be delegated. But professions that define themselves by a body of knowledge that they have, that they can apply to problems that's where professions really last. And I mean, I think that that is really helpful for us as we think about our field because laparoscopic technology, minimally invasive technology has changed very rapidly. And, you know, at, a t at the time when um, our societies and our profession was kind of defined several decades ago, this was a, a very niche thing to do. Um, it was not ever, you know, only very few places could you go and have a minimally invasive hysterectomy. Um, but we've seen that technology and the 
to, to where now, I mean, I think most people would say that like minimally invasive surgery is the standard of care in GYN. So it, we, we are now trying to, we're trying to make this claim that like we have a specific area of expertise or knowledge or skill that in actuality, like is the standard of care um, in most developed countries. And so I, I think it, even in our short little, you know, 20 or 30 years of our profession, you can see why defining our profession around a specific technology is problematic, um, at least in terms of the, the longevity of our profession. so appreciate you pulling in these different areas like Abbott's work. Um, and you're right, we're not just technicians. We're so much more than that. And I really loved how you talked about the diagnosis, the treatment, and the inference. And I loved how you talked about how inference is arguably the most critical factor to claim jurisdiction. And what you're, what you're re referencing with that, I think, is that jurisdiction is our profession. And our deep and incredible knowledge in these different areas, such as endometriosis or fibroids or chronic pelvic pain, that's really what differentiates us from just a technician. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that, again, keeping patients as our true north, right? If, if we want to stay true to that mantra, then that means that we need providers who can, who can evaluate, treat, and advise patients using an entire spectrum of modalities, right? Because there are going to be patients whose, whose best outcome is not going to be facilitated by surgery. It's not, it's not going to be facilitated by minimally invasive surgery. It's going to be facilitated by medical therapy or another type of therapy. And so I think that if we're going to keep patients as our true north, we have to be, we have to be honest to say that we want providers who can offer a full spectrum of services to those patients. So in regard to subspecialty creation, it's not just a name, right? Like what else would, would a more representative subspecialty creation do for our field? Yeah, I, I think that there's lots of, I think that there are a lot of downstream effects um, that, you know, we kind of talk about peripherally, but we don't really, we don't really label. And um, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. Um, I think one thing is there's a lot of conversation in our field about reimbursement, right? One of the points people make frequently is that women's health is is under reimbursed um, compared to, to other specialties and specifically in surgery. I mean, when you, when you look at reimbursement rates across surgical specialties, um, they're, they're much lower for, for GYN surgery than for other specialties. And um, again, you know, you could have like tons of arguments and discussion points about, about why that is. But I, I think that at the end of the day, those realities of our field don't change unless there is a collective group of people who are going to advocate and push for that change. And, and who can demonstrate value in making that change, right? Like nobody's going to make changes to reimbursement for GYN surgery just because we said, poor us, we want to get reimbursed more, right? But if we are able to collectively demonstrate value in what we're doing that is different from what other people are doing, now we have an argument that can be made of why our services can be of more value. And I think it's important to point out that this isn't just about this isn't just about how much money doctors make, right? When when specialties are 
the, the reimbursement for procedures and for work by physicians has a lot of downstream effects into what that profession can do. So professions that are, reim, are reimbursed better are able to recruit recruit better, right? Um, we're able to have more at our disposal in terms of, of research and innovative patient care. And uh, we can now progress the care of women because, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to have dollars to be able to do some of those things. And so having our services be appropriately reimbursed on par with other surgical specialties, I think is a huge way in which we can advance women's health, um, both in a clinical realm as well as a research realm. But that's not going to happen without advocacy and pressure from a, a, from a collective group of people. So I think that's, I think that's one way. Um, I, I think that um, also there is just a messaging that can happen when you have a, a well-defined profession that has a, on some level, a consistent commodity, for lack of a better term, to market, especially in today's world of internet and social media, so much of patient care today is patient-driven. Patients are looking for something specific. They are looking for providers who can do X, Y, or Z, who can take care of this condition or that condition. And I think one of the challenges of our specialty is the variation that there is amongst different training programs, different practice styles, different modalities. And that makes it hard for us to give a cohesive message to patients to say, hey, you want you want this or that, you want X, Y, or Z, come see us because this is what we do. Um, it's hard to communicate a consistent uh, message to patients when there's not a consistent service or treatment that that is frequently offered. And so I think in both of those realms, I think our specialty would benefit in having a more defined, you know, defined jurisdiction about what we do and what we don't do so that we can advocate for that in the public sphere, uh, both to patients, but also like at a, at a policy level, at a reimbursement level. Um, I think those things will go a long way to promoting uh, women's surgical care. Perfectly put, as always, and such important points in that when you talk about reimbursement and improving coding, it's not just at all for, for what we're being actually paid, right? That is not what we're going for. I mean, for instance, endometriosis, right? The CPT codes haven't been changed for like over 10 years, and they're so inaccurate in what exactly happens in endometriosis surgeries. What does that mean? It means that we can't track the disease the way we should. It means we can't get money to do research the way we should. I mean, ultimately, it's going always, like you and I have spoken spoke about, back to the patient. And to really make headway in some of these diseases, I mean, we need to do research. We need money to, to fund these things. And ultimately, this is how we do it. Yeah, yeah. I, t I touched on this briefly in the in the paper, but I, one of the most interesting things to me about this research was some of the historical research where, you know, the kind of classic historical understanding of, of medical specialization was that medical specialties developed around organ-based disease. So, you know, there were conditions with the bladder, and so we developed urologists. And there were conditions with the heart, so we developed cardiologists. But some, some very thoughtful historians, um, I think, paint that in a very different context when they point out that, like, that's not, that's not a complete picture. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of specialties that developed in other ways. For example, like some specialties like pediatrics developed around caring for uh, patients in a specific age population. Other, you know, other specialties developed around using specific modalities like radiology. But in the paper, I, I talk about how the 
more the more nuanced understanding of how specialties first developed in the French medical system was out of a need to create kind of a collective social organization. So these these medical specialties helped kind of define themselves and push medicine forward by doing research and pooling resources and collecting large enough patients that studies could happen and that patterns could be seen. Um, And I, I think that it is an important point to note that if we think about conditions like endometriosis and fibroids and we say, you know, we need more funding for this. We need more funding for research. Okay, we get more funding for research. But if you don't have the professional infrastructure with which that funding can be disseminated into research and into clinical care improvement, uh, then it's not money well spent. And so I think for a lot of reasons that some of these conditions, which we know are underfunded on a national level, on a corporate level, having these conditions be centered within a profession that really owns them and advocates for them and pushes the ball forward, I think having that profession in place will do more than any dollar amount or name recognition uh, to advance those those causes for women. Jake Lauer, can I please tell you how happy I am that you chose MIGS because you were going to change our field. Do you understand? Like, I am so happy that you chose to come with this family because I feel like your brain, it just works at a different level. And I, I just so appreciate all the work that you put into this. Thank you. Oh yeah, you're so thoughtful. Yeah, no, I, I think um, I'm so glad to be a part of our field. I mean, I, I look at our specialty and I think we have just really committed, really bright colleagues who bring a lot of value to patient care. Um, I think we have patients who are really seeking changes, like seeking more quality, better outcomes, more innovation. And so I would love to see those two things come together, you know, for us to really uh, organize in a more intentional and focused way as a profession to, to meet the needs of our patients. Such exciting times. And you know, one thing about MIGS that I actually love is that it isn't really well created yet, right? We're still a baby compared to other subspecialties, which I think actually allows us to be really like innovative and thought provoking. And it actually allows us to really form the field, right? I think that's actually really exciting. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think the future is bright and um, there's a lot of opportunity and um, hopefully we'll in our, in our lifetime see some, see some steps of progress. Amazing. Well, Jake, I do want to say that you graduate in a year and a half. You are still perusing jobs. If anyone is interested in this brilliant brain, then please reach out. Thank you so much for your time, Jake. And I can't wait to see you really soon. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. It's been a joy as always. So hope to see your face soon. Thanks, Jake. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.